Welcome back to Paninis and Prattle, where we dish out sizzling sandwiches and insights to American literature. This episode, we take a look into Henry Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener, Edgar Allan Poe's Lygia, and Henry Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. Bartleby the Scrivener is narrated by the lawyer who is running a law practice firm on Wall Street. The lawyer introduces some of the Scriveners in his office, Turkey and Nippers. The lawyer then hires Bartleby, who seems to work well all the time. Until one day, the lawyer asks Bartleby to do something he responds with, I would prefer not to. The lawyer is shocked by the answer, but brushes it off. He thinks this is a one-time thing that will pass, but he soon enough finds out that Bartleby prefers not to do a lot of things. Soon the lawyer moves his Scriveners to a different building and Bartleby remains at the one on Wall Street, not seeming to mind that it will soon have new inhabitants. Bartleby refuses to leave the Wall Street office and soon finds himself in jail. Bartleby soon after dies of starvation in jail in the jail courtyard while he was staring at a wall. Melville did an overall outstanding job in writing Bartleby the Scrivener, but I think the ignorance of the lawyer was a little much at times. Like when the lawyer invited Bartleby to stay at his own home. Bartleby said I, in the kindest tone I could assume under such exciting circumstances, will you go home with me now, not to my office, but my dwelling, and remain there until we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for you at our own leisure? Come, let us set, start right, let us start now, right away. Something to add to that too, is I think that the lawyer just feels so bad for Bartleby throughout the whole thing that he was kind of blindsided by that because it's not typically like a traditional business thing to do to let your like underperforming employee come into your own home. Like it kind of crosses a boundary at that point. And while I think the it shows his like ignorance, I also think that the the lawyer is also just really empathetic. And with praise for that one, I really like how thoroughly all of the characters were described, such as Turkey being old, working well in the morning, and being drunk in the afternoon, and in the afternoon being really sloppy during his work, and being prone to temperamental outbursts because he's drunk. Um, Nippers is young and ambitious, and he doesn't work well in the morning due to as they describe it, indigestion, which either could be like actual stomach problems or it could be just being so high, strung, and stressed. He's really fidgety and he works well in the afternoon after he gets over his indigestion. And then there's Ginger Nut, finally, who is the boy who runs errands for the whole team. And he's nicknamed Ginger Nut because he often brings Ginger Nut cakes for turkey and nippers. And he's really eager. And I just think that all the characters are really fully developed and it's just like easy to be transported into the story when you know all about the characters. Yeah, the author does a good job of really incorporating all the characters into the story so that they have an impact on the story and it feels like an actual office instead of just barely standing there. Uh, this Bartleby is relevant and influences society because 
I think Bartleby represents isolation and separation, which are two main things people, especially teens, deal with in society today. Especially with social media and, like, I'm sure we've all done it where we're just, like, holed up in our bedrooms with our phones. (laughs) And while it's nice, it's also, like, we're isolating ourselves from reality and socializing with maybe our family or, like, other people. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Also, Bartleby spent a lot of time staring out his window, but the only thing he could see was a large brick wall. By staring out the window, not doing his work, and not socializing with the other Scriveners, Bartleby is isolating and separating himself. It gets to a point where Bartleby has stayed in the office so long without doing anything that the lawyer says, He remained as ever, a fixture in my chamber. Nay, if it were possible, he would become still more of a fixture than before. What was to be done? He would do nothing in the office. Why should he stay there? In plain fact, he had now become a milestone Millstone to me, not only useless as a necklace, but afflictive to bear. Yeah, I was sorry for him. I speak less the truth when I say that on his own account, he occasioned me uneasiness. If he would have been named a single relative or friend, I would have instantly have written and urged their taking the poor fellow away to some convenient retreat. But he seemed alone, absolutely alone in the universe. Because Bartleby has completely separated himself from any friends or family members and has enclosed himself in the office, he's completely isolated and out of touch from reality. And this shows how, over time, throughout his work, he's just slowly lost his humanity until he was just a shell of his former hardworking self. So whereas Bartleby is just isolated himself without anything, he's not really doing his work at that point. I think it's relevant to society because of how people tend to shut themselves up in like social media, like we were saying earlier. Lygia is a dark romantic piece written by Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was born in Massachusetts and wrote a lot of his pieces in the early to mid 1800s. His pieces were famous for being able to create a dark atmosphere and create a lot of tension and fear in his writing. The story of Legia is about a man who was married to his beautiful wife, who was also named Legia. The speaker at first goes into great detail describing her beauty, which was quite strange and almost otherworldly. He frequently compares her features to those of gods or goddesses in addition to describing her as a shadow and ghost-like figure. One explanation reads, In beauty of face, no maiden ever equaled her. It was the radiance of an opium dream, an airy and spirit-lifting vision, more wildly defined than any fantasies which hovered visions about the slumbering souls of the daughters of Delos. After she passes away and the speaker inherits her wealth, he moves to a large mansion and marries a new lady. Eventually, his new wife falls sick, and while she is on his deathbed, he starts to hallucinate. After he thinks she passes, she rises out of her bed and stands up. The story ends with him realizing that the person who stood up was not his wife, but actually Lygia. Some criticism for this story is that throughout, it doesn't really have like a specific purpose or message to convey or a goal in it. It honestly just like goes on first with him explaining her beauty and then 
his weird opium induced like <laughs> recollection of how events happened, which obviously he's not a reliable narrator because of the opium problem that he has. And there's not really any like direction in it until the very end. And even then questions aren't exactly answered. So really it's just like a piece to entertain the audience, not yeah. really inform about anything. Which, I mean, if that's what, I think that's what he was going for mostly because Edgar Allan Poe was more about like entertainment and the suspense factor than like actually trying to convey some sort of moral message. He was into creating that atmosphere of tension and uncertainty with what was actually going on in his uh, writing, which is why he had such an unreliable narrator who was always on opium fever dreams. Um, Poe also does a really good job of making the reader feel uneasy with his writing. He creates an atmosphere in a story that makes the reader question what is going on and why. So even though the piece doesn't really have a purpose like Bartleby did and other stories that we've talked about, but it just is really to entertain the audience and he does a very good job with that. It's kind of one of those stories where so much happens in such little words and it's not always obvious. So it's almost like if you blink, then you could miss this huge event that's super important to the plot and... It's just a really interesting and different style of writing than a lot of different authors, especially in that era. One way this story could be relevant to our current society is how it could be a commentary on the current opioid crisis. It shows how opioids and other drugs border lines between realities and fantasy in a way where the user just can't tell the difference anymore when they're under the influence of the drugs. The, narr- the narrator shows this himself by describing the events that realistically can't happen in the real world. It's possible he was just under the influence of the drugs, and because of that, he couldn't dis- discern what was his dreams and what was reality and what was actually happening. This shows how, with our current drug epidemic in the country, how people just fall under the influence and keep using, and they don't really understand what's going on in their lives anymore. And it's so hard for them to stop as well because once they're under the influence of that drug and it has blurred reality so much, it's hard for them to like tell what really is real and what should be real and what shouldn't. So So, it's just really hard to get out of that trap, I think. So like some of the good things in their life, they don't know if that would happen without the drugs and they feel like they need to keep going back. And this isn't just about opioids. It could also be like the other hard drugs that are in the country, like meth and heroin. And Self-Reliance was an essay written by Henry Waldo Emerson. It was one of the pieces that first pioneered the transcendentalism way of thinking. Throughout this piece, Emerson discusses how society is working against the self-interest of the common man, that its structure is not for the benefit of people like him. He continues by saying that to live your own life, you need to reject the things of society like news and the media that just distract you from what's really important, and you need to live away from that and only for yourself and for finding your higher truth.
Um, in this piece, there wasn't any real practical applications of Emerson's ideas in this essay. It was mainly full of abstract ideas. Like, he talks about ideals and keeping to yourself, but he doesn't talk about how to actually apply that when you're living in a society that you have to be part of. He's more just of saying, like, in an ideal world, you could be living for yourself and freeing from all of that. But when you have to be, like, a productive citizen in a society, like you live in a city, it's really not realistic at all to expect someone to just completely take all of... Yeah, cut themselves off and take everything out of their lives like that. So while his ideas are a bit outlandish, Emerson's piece paved the way for transcendentalism and that way of thinking to come for many years in the future and made a lot of convincing points of how society and the media is detrimental to humanity and the members of that society. So it's relevant to society because um, although it may be a bit extreme at times, Emerson really does have an immensely close relationship with nature, which he references a lot. And I think a lot of people lack that in society today. It seems as though everyone's always concerned with busying themselves and advancing forward and progressing and coming up with new technology and staying um, staying updated on what's happening in the news and the media, that they miss out on truly bettering themselves on a personal level and connecting with the environment and nature. And of course, people still do that, but it's kind of in a sheltered way, like a park. And he's kind of more implying that you need to go out like into pure, uncut nature and truly discover yourself. Um, One quote is that nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. And this quote here shows that the heart of Emerson's ideas peace and fulfillment have to come from you and not society around you, which um, a lot of people today kind of base all their own opinions and what brings happiness to them. Like it's influenced a lot by the media and what other people have to say about them and what other people have to say about society. That quote also talks about Emerson's heart focus on ideals and sticking to those ideals and not breaking away from them because that's how you stay grounded in yourself. And once you start breaking away from them, that's how society starts to influence you and take advantage of you. And you start to lose your sense of person. Another quote that also shows this idea is trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to the iron string. And this quote shows that To affect society and the world, it has to start within you and it has to be your own passion. And it can't be like, it can't always be an outside influence because someone has to have that inside passion that brings up their ideas into the world. I think it also is talking about how like you have to be like your own person. You can't be the same person as everybody else because if everybody was exactly the same, that would just be so boring and it wouldn't like make life interesting like everybody has to be different exactly and one of the main ideas that he's against in society is conformity and trying to be like everyone else and that's just not how like it's it just isn't 
productive on a personal level that it's way. not a way to live your life yeah and honestly that's kind of what is happening in like the society of teens today because everybody sees like what is in style and like trendy trendy and they try to do that because they want to be in style and trendy like everybody else but like all this in style and trendy things like had to start from one person and now everyone is trying to conform and be like that person. Exactly. Welcome to our special section of the podcast, the Panini Press. This week, we had a dessert panini, which was a Nutella spread, marshmallow cream, and bananas cooked on French bread. We call this panini the Lygia because its contrast and ingredients mirror the contrast in the narrator's two wives in Lygia. First of all, we have the dark, complex Nutella spread that would be Lady Lygia. Much like Lygia, Nutella has a certain kind of depth about it. The hazelnut, the creaminess, and the dark chocolate flavor works together to create one addictive spread that keeps you coming back for more. Secondly, we have a sweet and simple marshmallow cream and banana pairing that is Lady Rowena. The fair coloring of the banana and marshmallow cream represent Lady Rowena's fair skin and hair, while the basic sweet flavor of both symbolize her stereotypical heroine or princess connotation throughout the piece. If the narrator were to eat this dessert panini, he would much prefer the Nutella over the banana and marshmallow cream because of its darkness, depth, and addictive properties, just like Lygia was, because he really didn't like Lady Rowena at all. He was, she was much too simple for him and annoyed him i think definitely a constellation prize to lady elijah oh for sure so now for the review panini review personally i thought that this panini was it was much different from our last panini but different it was very sweet pretty much everything in it was sweet (laughs) but i think contrasting the sweet flavor yeah but i i still thought it was good like it definitely could have used something to contrast it yeah that would have made it better i think but i don't know like what we could have yeah i really liked the brioche bread that we used yes i don't know i feel like the bread was the star kind of if that makes (laughs) any sense even though it it shouldn't necessarily be the star. It of kind it. of acted as a contrast to all the sweet flavors. Yeah, because yeah. it was buttery and like crispy. Yeah, crispy. I like how the banana kind of just brought all the flavors together. Yeah. Like it brought the marshmallow and the Nutella together. And it was a contrast in texture as well because it just gets like melty and gooey with the marshmallow and the Nutella. Yes. Yeah, without the bananas, the panini would not have been as good as it would was i do have to say though one bite of my panini was a little strange (laughs) kind of tasted like in a way the best thing i could compare it to was the jungle at the henry dorley zoo and i'm not (laughs) sure why but that's just it has a certain smell about it like all the bats and stuff so i'm not really sure what was going on with that slice of banana that i chomped on there but um not good not, not good <laughs> but really the rest of it the was good out of out of 10 i would probably rate it like a 7.2 i'd give it about a 6.8 i'd give it a 6 probably i definitely liked the first panini the oh, me too. panini better 
It was yeah. a lot more savory than this yes. one. Yes, I mean, that one also was like a meal sandwich. This one was yeah. more of a dessert. Yes. So I could see why it wasn't as savory. Yeah. Just too too sweet at points. Yes. You got to have some flavors to mix it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some depth. All right. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Paninis and Prattle. See you next time.